Traffic issues, so some people might be getting in here late, but we've got to get started. Um, first of all, I want to thank everybody for coming to such an important event. And I also want to thank Kevin Skipper and the VCC crew for committing uh, part of their uh, events always dedicated to tobacco harm reduction and, of course, advocacy. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Dimitris Agrafiotis. I am the executive director of the Tennessee Smoke Free Association. Uh, I'm also the secretary of VISTA, which you're going to hear about here in a little bit, and I'm also the chief operations officer for Mountain Oak Vapors. Um, before we get started, this conference is being sponsored by Halo and Inikin, and nobody from Inikin was able to come. Paul Hare, the guy with the big hair, I'm sure everybody knows him by now, uh, is sick in China and George had problems with his visa, but they wanted me to relay their messages uh, and their commitment as a Chinese manufacturer to continuing to fund and try to promote and help advocacy uh, here in the United States. So we want to thank them for that. Um, before we get started, one more time, I want everybody just kind of go down the line to introduce themselves uh, and uh, who you're affiliated with. So. Uh, we're going to get into some issues, and then we're going to open up the, the mic for you uh, if you have any questions for our panelists. Go ahead, Adam. I'm Kevin Skipper, and I am uh, the president of VISTA and also the owner and founder of the Baby Convention Circuit, and I'd like to welcome you all here. I'm glad you were able to make it out tonight. Uh, we are going to be recording this right now so that we can edit it and produce it and get it out there for mass distribution and sharing for everyone because... Um, the industry advocacy summits are, you know, we did the first one in Chattanooga in October. They're easily my favorite part of the entire weekend. It's the most important part of the entire weekend, in my opinion, is to get the business owners educated and involved with what we're doing or what we're trying to do to help save this product that we all love so much and keep it around for everyone else out there that hasn't had a chance to switch over from tobacco use yet. So that's our goal. That's what we're here for. And uh, with that said, I'll pass it over to Terrell Bowen. I'm Terrell Bowen, also known as TD. Everyone in the industry I think knows me as TD Bowen, but um, I sit on the board of directors with, with Kevin at Vista. Uh, also just launched the Florida Smoke Free Association in conjunction with TSFA as well. Uh, Dimitri helped us with that, and also one of the owners of Moon Mountain. Hello, I'm Jamie Miller. I'm with Capital Access. We're your lobbyists here in Florida. We're um, we are the lobbyists for VISTA, so we kind of oversee the lobbying effort uh, where VISTA is active, which is right now in Florida and Tennessee. Uh, there are several bills in Florida that I'm sure we're going to talk about, so I won't belabor the point now. <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name is Gregory Conley. I'm the president of the American Vaping Association, an organization that uh, advocates to the media, advocates to state legislatures about the benefits of vapor products. And before this, I served for three years as the legislative director for a great group, CASA, who's also on the panel. And thank you all for coming. Hi, everybody. I'm Cynthia Cabrera. I am the executive director of the Smoke Free Alternatives Trade Association. We have the clunky name, SPARA. So if you ever hear that, that's who we are. Um, we're a national organization. We've got some state chapters. So I'm really happy that we're going to be talking about the state issues that we're all facing right now. Hi, my name is Azeem Chowdhury. I am an attorney at Keller & Heckman. We're based in Washington, D.C. I focus on the FDA issues. I've been representing e-cigarette, e-liquid companies for a number of years now before FDA. And uh, I hope we get a chance to talk about some of those very important issues because that is coming down the line. Um, so. Hi, I'm Pamela Gorman. I'm the Director of Government Relations for Enjoy out of Scottsdale, Arizona. 
to see some faces here I don't recognize. That means not everybody here has heard all of our jokes yet. So thank you for coming, and I hope you learned something tonight. Hello, my name is Brian Foydick, and I am the Director of External Relations for Enjoy and handle <coughs> state government most of the states east of the Mississippi. Thanks. I'm Julie Westner. I'm the Executive Director of CASA, and if Safada thinks they've got a clunky name, Consumer Advocates for Smoke-Free Alternatives Association. Um, we're, we're the consumer um, advocacy group, and I'm really excited to be here. We've been around for six years now. I'm Alex Clark. I'm the Legislative Director for CASA. Um, I work very closely with Julie and Greg and some other wonderful people up here on the panel to produce all of the calls to action that you see coming out of CASA um, and hopefully pass along to your customers. And thank you everybody for coming on tonight. I'm Joe Barnett from Vaping Militia. We're more of an activism group. We take all the messages that all these people work so hard to vet out and make sure they're right. And we cram them in people's faces. That's what we do. <laughs> uh, I'm Jerry Paul, also with Capital Access, along with Jamie. We are the lobbyists here in Florida, and we also have Kevin coordinate lobbying efforts in other states where legislation has popped up that, uh, that would, uh, in various ways, restrict your individual personal rights to vape or to vape without higher taxes. We've also been helping Kevin and some others with setting up some online platforms for trying to politically organize uh, raise funds necessary to hire lobbyists and communications and uh, establishing a political action committee called Smoke Free Defense, which you'll hear more about uh, through the course of the week. My name is Paul Blair and I work for Americans for Tax Reform. It's a pretty easy uh, organization, uh, ATR, uh, a little bit easier than Safad and Kasa. Uh, we oppose all tax increases. Um, and so this is a, an issue of vapor in the electronic cigarette. Regulation and taxation has become an uh, extremely important issue for us over the last two years, uh, given, the given that these products have been targeted for higher tax and regulations at the state level um, and the federal level. So uh, we work to put together coalitions of consumer groups, limited government groups, taxpayer organizations, lobbyists, and legislators um, to work on issues similar to this. It might say what honor it is to be among these brilliant advocacy and government affairs people. Um, I think we should focus a lot today on state level uh, government affairs because as you may have noticed, all of you are here business owners in various states, we do have a barrage of attacks through various bills that are coming in to choke the industry. But I wanna start off first by the person that kind of triggered me last year to get involved in uh, the state legislation, that is Pamela Gorman. She said something really interesting last year at Vegas. So always stuck in my mind when it comes to vendors and how vendors are gonna protect their businesses. And, and her statement to, uh, to the, the crowd there in Vegas when she gave her, her speech was, as a business owner right now, in any capacity of the ESIC industry, you cannot afford not to afford government affairs. So it's extremely important, I want Pamela to touch on that, just expand a little bit on that before we get into some more specifics. So it's my fault. <laughs> uh, my comment um, at this ESIC meeting was basically, when you make a big investment in something, I mean, how many people here are no longer working a previous job? This is your livelihood. Say show hands. Put your hands up. Okay. So you were doing something before, you're not doing now. You're probably not real easy to go back into it. 
So you've got a lot on the line, right? Isn't that worth a little bit of investment to protect it? Like, you know? And that's really kind of how you have to look at it. You know, even when I first came to Enjoy, couple years ago, I think government affairs initially was seen as something extra, just something extra, which is always scary when that's your livelihood and you're on the budget as an extra nice thing we can do when we have extra money. But now they've come to see that what we're doing in government affairs is actually preserving their right to be in the marketplace to earn profit. If you can't be in the marketplace, what is your profit? Who's good at math? Zero. <laughs> very well done, very well done. So that was the point of the conversation, is you're either in or you're out. Or as I put it in California recently, you're either gonna step up and play or you're gonna get played. There is no other option. Brian, I hear sometimes from the vendors, you know, through the Tennessee Smoker Association that we kind of launched last year, I hear sometimes from the vendors where, I can't really afford that. I can't really afford to put the money in now, what do you say to the vendors that have that kind of mentality that, well, I really can't afford now in my business, I don't have it in my business plan to spend the money for government affairs? Um, first, I would say that the audience here, I would hope and expect probably is not the ones that we really want to hear this message, but I would say that they have a pretty bad business plan if they don't account for uh, protecting their opportunity to do business, and everything I've seen in the states, I mean, there's a lot of activity occurring, which is really good. It would have been great if some of it happened earlier, but you know, you do what you can, when you can, and every, you see a few vendors step up in a state, typically, in my experience, that recognize the need to uh, unify, and there's no better voice on our issues than businesses and residents of that state, the businesses and their customers, uh, for legislators to hear from, but what happens typically is you see one or two or three of them say, we need to do this, and I'm gonna carry the weight of everyone until uh, you know everybody else wakes up. And, and I've seen them all, though, try to draft very reasonable plans that make it affordable and make it a monthly payment that's manageable that you can plan for, where you're not just asked for a big check at one time that you can build it into a plan and and I would encourage you all to push in that direction if you're not already but like I said a lot of the people that really need to hear some of this stuff are the people that don't bother to show up absolutely I kind of sometimes relate to my restaurant I pay into the Tennessee Restaurant Association every year and it's budgeted in with my rent and my power bill and my employee bills $3,400 a year, I don't really know where it goes. <laughs> but it goes to the association that protects the restaurants in Tennessee. And, and I think it's extremely important. Uh, Gregory Conley, being an attorney and, and following closely the legislation that's coming this year, why is it so important right now to get the states and the vendors in the various states organized? I mean, what are you seeing from the political climate that's coming down with the various bills uh, across the U.S.? Every year, the attack on this industry only grows, and with the FDA announcing their intent to regulate e-cigarettes as tobacco products, that just gives yet another excuse to state legislators to act by making these products tobacco. Um, the high youth usage, um, manipulating past 30-day usage to try and present vapor products as creating an epidemic of addiction among teens is giving state legislators yet another excuse to target this industry. So if you look at me now, I probably have bags under my eyes because I am tired. It is only the end of February. 
Uh, we don't even have every single state in session yet. We don't have the bills that are coming up in Florida. We don't have the bills that are coming up in Massachusetts yet. And already, I'm tracking something like probably 160 substantive bills. And there are threats coming at you from every angle, from the usual stuff we're used to, uh, taxes, usage bans, and now we're entering a new era of labeling weird and terribly written child-resistant cat bills, things that could lead to you being unable to purchase a product from somebody across state lines, manufacturing bills that are being written either by tobacco companies that don't have an interest in e-liquid, or in shady e-liquid companies, as we've seen in Indiana, where the shady e-liquid company wants to control the market in a particular state, so they're willing to go spend lobbying money to try and corner that market. So essentially what I'm trying to say is that the attacks are growing every year and where we do have state associations, where we do have lobbyists on the ground, they are a tremendous help and they send a signal to legislators that if you're gonna come after this industry, you better be prepared because there is a force that's out there to oppose you. Also, expand just a little bit more on that, Greg, it appears to me that the industry as a whole, about eight, nine months ago, turned our direction to the FDA when the regulations were announced. And it seems like the entire industry was focused on what we're we gonna do with the regulations. And at the same time we were focusing on the federal, it seems like everybody started hitting on the state. So we kind of turned all of our attention to the federal, leaving the state behind. And there's a big difference there. There's a difference between the federal regulations and state regulations, because federal regulations take a very, very long time. So you're gonna just explain that a little bit? Sure. At the moment, it appears that the FDA has a self-imposed deadline, which if you've studied the FDA Center for Tobacco Products, you know that they're not very good with self-imposed deadlines. But they want to have the deeming regulation finalized by June. And then there are going to be lawsuits, there's going to be a waiting period before anything is implemented, there's going to be continual science, continual meetings with the FDA. It is a slow process. We are hopeful that if it comes to it, that we will be able to work uh, and activate people at the federal level to get a bill in Congress to fix various issues so that this doesn't decimate this entire industry. But you can't just take the fact that the FDA isn't going to be regulating your products for two and a half, three years, maybe more, depending on lawsuits filed by groups like Safada. But at that state level, they can crush you in a matter of two months Hell, they can introduce, they can crush you in a matter of two weeks by getting a bill introduced, moving it through a committee, getting it voted on, moving to another committee, and then going to the governor. So, long story short, at the states, things move a hundred times faster, and we've had great success in beating back terrible bills, but I fear that we're getting to the point where there are so many and there are so many forces against us that if the industry doesn't get activated uh, at the state level, then some states are going to be in trouble. Cynthia Cabrera with, with SPADA. Through your group, and I know you work more in the D.C. area, you try to work more on a federal level, but we're seeing now, which is it's a good thing, we're seeing some local chapters of SPADA being formed, finally, after a long struggle. Only one person. <laughs> and, I've also, and I've also seen SPADA grow as well from when it was first introduced. So seeing a lot of members on there is a great thing. But on a local level, what has been the biggest struggle trying to get these states organized? For example, California. California was one of the states which I have been very critical and vocal against 
for not being organized all this time. I think that they had the power two, three years ago to be really, really active. Now, finally, got to the point where everything's coming out and we saw some organization. So what are some of the struggles that you have seen through the various states trying to get these, uh, these vendors organized? You know, it's really interesting that you bring that up because one of the struggles that we've found, I've found, is that when everything is fine, if people don't have a threat right in front of them, they don't feel a need to get activated. And I don't want to say that it's human nature because that would mean that everybody is exactly the same way and that's not true. There are some people who are far reaching, they're, they're visionary, they, they think the long game, but there are enough people that as long as they don't think it affects them or they think somebody else will do it for them, they're cool, they're good with it. And that's the problem. So what happens is that we get a few people doing the heavy lifting for everybody. And I've had people say to me, well, I don't know if I should donate, I don't know why I should contribute if so-and-so doesn't. And at the end of the day, to paraphrase what Pamela said, you're making a business decision. So that's one of the, one of the issues, is that unless people are being threatened, unless they feel like they have the gun to their heads, they don't think it's important to do anything. They just don't get activated. And it's another issue is that there's some strategic thinking involved. There's some strategic planning involved. So for example, at the federal level, Senator Nelson introduced a bill that will um, dictate packaging requirements for vapor products. And they're doing that ahead of the FDA regulations because they don't know when those are gonna come out. The problem with the Nelson bill is that it establishes not a ceiling, but a floor for states. And so what that means is that the different states will be able to take that bill and go far beyond it in the states because now there's this federal floor. So all these things kind of work together and unless you're in it every day and thinking about these things, which you're not because you're running businesses, people are running businesses, so that's another reason to band together, to unite, because then somebody is helping you. Somebody is doing that thinking for you because you need to focus on your businesses. So the challenges in California, I will tell you that we have more members in California than any other state. And I love California. I don't love the politics of California, but I love <laughs> California. But when that health report came out, it was like people's hair caught fire. It was absolutely the most galvanizing thing I have seen. I mean, everybody was absolutely terrified. And unfortunately, that's what it took. I mean, listen, it's great. You do what you can when you can. And it would have been great if we had, in some of the states where we have some of these challenges, if we had been able to have some organization there sooner. You know, I mean, these guys have been working on some of this stuff months and months ahead. We always come up a little bit behind. It would be great if we can get to the point where we're actually anticipating and we're working ahead, just like everybody else. A great point. I heard that my podcast was played and that's one of the things I got all these calls from these California vendors, but at least it triggered some fundraising, so I guess. Thank you. That's right. thank you, you very much. Everybody thanks for California, but at least we got money. That's good, that's a good thing. Um, one of the things that I try to do with the Tennessee Smoke Free Association, and Cynthia is right, it's just one person. These groups, even though you know we're trying to do a lot of things, not one group that you're gonna see up here, or not one individual will be able to get anything done. But my goal with the Tennessee Smoke Free Association was to work with these people, all of them, as a group, have them feed the information that's gonna pertain to Tennessee, if there is. They, don't, they shouldn't be bothered with Tennessee if there's nothing going on in Tennessee. 
uh, and trying to get the vendors organized under an umbrella. And we did that last year. We hired a lobbyist actually last year to represent the Tennessee Smoke Association with nothing on the board, no bills in Tennessee. But when the bill came this year, our lobbyist was aware of it. We already talked to RGR a few weeks before the bill was dropped. They, they knew that we're gonna, they're gonna face opposition. And I think it really helped us there. So, Jamie, let's talk about the importance of having a lobbyist in every state to represent the industry and the vendors that are there. Well, I think you, I think you touched on it. Right now in so many states, we're just playing defense. And it's like, wait till something happens. They're gonna run us out of business. And how many of you guys are from Florida? Okay, do you, you guys remember the sweepstakes shops that were on every corner, the 777? <laughs> they went from being legal to illegal in two weeks. And they can do the same thing to you. It's just, just, like, we, just like it was said earlier. And so the difference is in Tennessee and in Florida, when there wasn't a bill, and there's a several bills coming forward in Florida that, we've, that we're aware of, that, uh, that when there wasn't a bill, we're already up there advocating for you. And so well, there's a huge difference between protection and defense. And so you guys have to start thinking about, you wanna protect your business. You all have invested thousands of dollars hundreds of hours of time into your business. You can't just play defense. You can't just go out on the street and hold a sign and say, don't outlaw me. You have to, you have to protect your industry. And I hate to say it as much as a lot of you hate to hear it, is that to do that, you need someone who has the connections in your state capital, like Jerry and I do in Florida, and like the lobbyists in Tennessee do there, to start advocating for you now. So we had, um, you know, last year we were able to keep the bill only to outlawing the uh, nicotine products to those under the age of 18 for the most part. And so that was something we were able to then be proactive on. We wrote a press release saying, hey, we support this bill. We don't want people selling products to those under the age of 18. That press release was read on the floor of the state house after I think we were on board for four days, <laughs> so three or four days. So, uh, you know, that's the type of access someone like us who has decades of experience in a state capital have with the people who are making laws that, that could literally put a, a closed sign on your door within hours, days at least. Gregory? And I just want to add, you are all in the most attacked segment of the vapor industry, e-liquid. Right now, all across the country, it's mostly RJ Reynolds, our friends at Reynolds America, American, that are going around, they're having private meetings with legislators, and they are presenting vapor products as, we all know these products are less hazardous than smoking, and we have this data showing they help smokers quit. So yeah, these are great products, but, there are a lot of irresponsible players in this market. Have you seen these child poisoning numbers? Have you seen the way that they're marketing this e-liquid with their cartoons and their flavors? And we at RJ Reynolds, we only sell menthol and tobacco because we're responsible retailers. So you are under attack. It's not just education. The big tobacco guys, they have done good education at the state level about harm reduction, about nicotine not being what kills smokers. Legislators ignore it often, but they've done the education. But you need a whole new sector of education to these 
legislators about what open vapor products are, what e-liquid is, and how your products are actually the ones that consumers prefer. You're the dominant market, and you're having more studies show that it's the open vapor products that are actually helping people uh, switch away completely from smoking. And, and that's how law is made in this country. Don't blame me, I'm Greek. But I'm just saying that that's how law is being made. Uh, Brian, well, correct me if I'm wrong, RJR is spending $250 million this year on lobbying. Is that correct? Is that the number? I don't know if that's the number, but okay. they spend a heck of a lot of money. Yeah, so that's what we're up against, right? Our lobbyist in Tennessee was $40,000 for a defense, to, to basically take a defense stance this year. So yeah, we have a huge gap of, of money. Yeah, and I, I would add that when you think about what they spend in lobbying and, and what a lot of companies spend, but uh, they, they not only have lobbyists in all 50 states, they may have more than one, they may have a firm with seven lobbyists working on their behalf, they may have two firms, they may have a PR firm that is working in specific states, they have a national PR firm, they have research people, they are members of and donate money to the state, like Tobacco Wholesaler Association in that state, to the uh, convenience store petroleum marketers in that state. They have a lot of allies and they've worked diligently and spent a lot of money to have a giant group uh, that's armed to advocate for the things that they want. So, but the beauty is that it's a lot more difficult to pass legislation than it is to defeat it. We will never have what they have. We will never have what the Cancer Society has in terms of resources and lobbyists and PR. But it's, it's, it's very difficult to get a bill passed through two houses when you've gotta to go to committees, you've gotta post notice, people are aware of it, and having representation like you have here in Florida, and you do in Tennessee now, Illinois, um, other places, it's it. You you want to. Uh, fortunately, nobody understands these issues and these products. They're all running forward because they're afraid. This is scary, and we got to protect the kids. So we're gonna we're gonna run a bill about something we know nothing about. So that provides you an opportunity to educate. And there are so many different aspects of these products, of the health impacts, and everything else that confuse them. Confusion is our friend and fear is our friend. And when a lot of people show up and write, thanks to Alex and Julie and others, that has an impact too. And, and you don't need nearly the resources that they have to right. be successful. Sometimes, I'm very, very vocal about this. Sometimes I get misunderstood because people think that I hate the stick batteries and I hate the cartomizers, and that's not true. I just don't want them to be the only option for smokers, okay? We have to be able as an industry to be competitive. You know, come at us. Bring your product, but let's have our product on the market as well too. Paul, you want to add something? Like that? Sure. So, I mean, the importance of having um, lobbyists represent uh, consumers and businesses can't be can't be overstated. But there's also, as as Brian kind of alluded to, a secondary approach that's extremely important, if not as important. Um, something that ADA and, and many of the others um, on this panel uh, work very very hard at, which is to have a presence in the press. Um, and, and so, you know, the letters that you write to legislators, you should be sending to the press. Or the letters that, you're, that consumers are sending to legislators should be sent to the press. And so, to have allies, whether it's local chambers of commerce or um, limited government groups or, or organizations that may agree with what your uh, mission is or just may simply oppose um, unnecessary regulations or taxes um, is important as well because 
Um, in many cases, um, defeating legislation can take place in state papers. I mean, if you can embarrass someone um, it, by, by exposing um, you know, their agenda, whether it's uh, from the public health perspective or anti-public health perspective, as, as targets for these products really are, or from the tax perspective, um, you know, you can go. You can get a pretty, pretty, pretty. Uh, you can go pretty far distance um, in terms of making your case for what's important. And so, the, the lobbying component is extremely important, uh, particularly before legislation is dropped, or as it's being written, or as amendments uh, that the industry supports, whether it's new bans or otherwise. Uh, but having a presence in the press is also extremely important and, and uh, necessary. Great. I think that's a good point. I think several of the panelists have, have made the point about the importance of having representation uh, in the state capitol to be able to push back, defend, and even go on offense as to these proposed governmental policies that will make it more difficult for you to operate uh, your business. And uh, not to beat a dead horse on that, but I, I like to analogize to uh, litigation and lawsuits. You know, the difference between legislation and uh, uh, litigation being sued is that when you get sued you get served with process you get notice and yes although Greg I think mentioned yeah there's notice in the public hearings when there's a piece of legislation you don't get specific personal notice much of this happens in Tallahassee for example um, without a whole lot of knowledge about it um, yes yes it's public but the process does move very quickly as Greg pointed out and as Jamie pointed out, you can uh, start a bill, pass it, and get it to the governor in a couple few weeks, sitting and saying we oppose this bill. It's it's about an image. It's about a theme. Think about a think about a courtroom itself. All right, it's not just about the lawyer standing up in the closing argument. It's about building a case so that when you get to the closing argument, you have won over uh, that jury or a majority of that jury. Um, for example, and Paul's right. It's. It's also about your communications. It's about your public relationships. It's about your images, your themes that you've developed. It's about pushing back on certain politicians based on what they're saying, what their motivation is, what their staff persons are, are saying. It's not, in a courtroom, for example, it's not just about flooding the courtroom with a whole bunch of witnesses. You wanna get the right witnesses at the right time to say the right thing. All of that is coordinated by your lawyer. When you get sued in the lawsuit, um, most people will not go defend themselves in the courthouse. They recognize that they need somebody to manage that effort for them. The old saying that a lawyer represents himself as a fool for a client. You have to be represented. So too, in the governmental process, you need somebody to coordinate, not just the day-to-day -day lobbying, the walk in the halls, the figuring out what bill's gonna be filed, the meeting with each legislator and all of their committee staffs, but also, as Paul said, the messaging, the communications, the PR, all of that has to be synchronized together. You don't want to just uh, you don't want to just dump fifty letters to the editor in a particular newspaper because what you may be saying or the issue that you may be taking on, quite frankly, might be adverse to the theme that your lobbyist is pushing at the same time up in the Capitol. And what you end up doing is creating something in print that's going to be used against you. So you have to have a coordinated theme. Um, I think Demetrius is doing a great job of that in Tennessee, uh, and I think that uh, uh, TDE will be doing a great job of that uh, through Florida Smoke Free Association. Certainly, Kevin has been through Vista. Um, uh, in Tennessee, it was really interesting because a month before the bill came out, 
the RJR lobbyists had lunch with our lobbyists. And I, I don't think it was really just a lunch. Obviously, we're trying to get information from the, the lobbyists that represents the Tennessee Smokers Association on, on what we're planning on doing, how organized we are there, how many vendors we have, you know, what, what RJR was, you know, fishing, I guess, from the lobbyists. And our lobbyists had strict instructions. Uh, we oppose everything, <laughs> except, except an 18 minor ban. Um, while the microphone is down there, Paul, I just want to get one thing from you. Sometimes I hear vapors and vendors saying, okay, well, we're going to accept this tax, just a small tax. Oh, they only want to tax it for five cents. Let's go ahead and give them this tax. And as somebody that has dealt with those issues, by the way, the smoker has been the most heavily taxed syntax person in America for the last 25 years. And for those of you that smoke, you probably know that. So, Paul, just touch on that briefly on why we don't want to accept taxation on this part. So is everyone here familiar with what a sin tax or an excise tax is? It's, it's a tax that's imposed on a product the government thinks that you shouldn't use or behavior that you shouldn't do, like drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes. And so for years, um, cigarettes were among the most targeted product for taxes and regulations. And the claim was that it was about public health. Um, that they wanted to discourage smoking um, and encourage behaviors that they deemed acceptable. Well, with the advent of these products, uh, you know, these disruptive, innovative products that clearly are much healthier than tobacco and stand to save millions of lives, that whole claim, the claim by public health advocates and those who pushed for the extremely high taxes on tobacco products has been exposed as a fraud. The same people who for years pushed dollar and two dollar per pack increases on cigarettes are now pushing the same exact thing on electronic cigarettes. And so it's important to understand that it was never about public health. It was always about money for the interest and for the spending projects that state legislators wanted to spend things on, whether it was education or new roads or, or anything else. I mean, in Philadelphia right now, the city councilwoman who's pushed a, uh, a tax only two weeks after the cigarette tax went into law said we have got to spend more money on education. And so, again, it's not about public health at all. Uh, but one of the problems is um, in, um, in the transition from a discussion about the high taxes that exist on tobacco products to the sales taxes, which, is the only th only, which are the only taxes imposed on these products, are that some people are willing to accept a compromise. And that's problematic for a number of reasons. Um, when a, whether it's a consumer or a vendor or a lobbyist or a business says to the press or even in privately, we're willing to accept X, whether it's a five cent tax or a 10 cent tax or anything less than what the worst tax imaginable would be. And right now that's more or less doubling the cost of the products. We have 95% wholesale taxes somewhere. Um, that for legislators indicates, well, they're willing to move a step in my direction so let's start there and negotiate upwards. And um, you shouldn't accept a tax, an excise tax on products that save lives because it is counterintuitive to what sin taxes are supposed to be. Um, but it, it certainly hurts the entire discussion about preventing tax increases uh, because the starting point should be no tax increases. It shouldn't be a little bit of tax increases because that's what happened with cigarettes. Cigarettes weren't always taxed at two, three, four dollars a pack. It started out relatively low. And then in times of um, economic distress, whether it was a recession or whether someone wanted to build a new school or whatever it may have been, legislators, Republicans and Democrats said, well, smokers don't stand up for themselves. And so what, what's it matter if we impose a dollar, a dollar increase this year? And that happened year after year after year. Um, and so it's, it's problematic because you certainly don't want these products to fall in the same direction as, as tobacco. 
and you should absolutely reject any discussion about, um, regarding imposing any sort of similar taxes or regulations on them because it hurts the lobbying efforts, it hurts the earned media um, uh, efforts, and it, and it hurts your overall cause. I've often said we should get tax breaks. We should get tax incentives because we help so many people quit smoking. I mean, we should, we should have. The, I mean, the, uh, other products are subsidized in states. I mean, you sure. can get the patch, you, you can get the Nicorette gum subsidized, but they will send it to you for free if you ask. And so um, it, it's, it, it's at least something that should be part of the debate. Yeah. That is how you treat these products, and these are no different except they're effective. I just wanted to add on this. Um, when they're proposing excise taxes, when you talk about that, don't say that. Nobody knows what an excise tax is. I just say extra tax. Even when you're talking to legislators, I used to be a legislator. I sat on the tax committee, and I was halfway through my first session, and I finally turned to the guy next to me and whispered, what is an excise tax? <laughs> There's no rules. There's no, I'm sorry, there's no uh, guidebook for new legislators. And with term limits all around the country, a lot of your legislators are brand new. They don't know what that word is any more than you do. So when you go talk to them, use language you understand. Say, we already pay income tax and property tax and sales tax, just like every other consumer product. We don't think we should be paying an extra tax. That they get. Um, sometimes when, when you just say no taxes, we don't want to pay taxes, you sound like not a good community member. What, you don't believe we should pay policemen and pay roads? And That's not your point. You don't think you deserve to be taxed extra. So that's a really important part of it. That's a great point. The other thing is if they put a tobacco excise tax, which is almost entirely what they're going for. I don't know if I've seen any tax proposals this year that are not tobacco tax. They're really important people to you all unless you have a convenience store and you sell, you know, a hundred other things besides vapor, is that tobacco taxes are collected this way. They are collected by people who are licensed to be tobacco wholesalers. <laughs> then there's other parts of law that say the tobacco wholesalers can only legally sell to a licensed tobacco retailer. Then at the other end of that, there's a, another law that says tobacco retailers can only legally purchase from licensed tobacco wholesalers. Now here's the problem for you all. A tobacco wholesaler makes plenty of money and is happy as can be just pumping out cartons of cigarettes and pucks of smokeless tobacco. For them, the idea, no matter how awesome they think you are, they are not going to carry 200 flavors from 16 different companies and pieces and parts and mouthpieces and different atomizers. You know how quickly these products change? There is no way a tobacco wholesaler is gonna to bring to market what you need brought to market. I don't care whether you're a manufacturer like we are, or you're a retail shop, and you're just trying to get the products in-house so that you can compete with the online sellers who can get anything into your state that your people that used to come to your store need. That's why even one half of one penny of a tobacco excise tax puts most people in this room out of business. And I think that's important for you to understand because I see out on social media people going, well, it's one penny, it's not a big deal. Well, aside from the fact that it's only starting at one penny, it may be, it may be a dollar by the end of this legislative session. God forbid what's gonna be in 10 years. But there's also the problem that even at the tiniest minuscule amount of tobacco excise tax 
puts your products into the cigarette distribution channel that you don't have access to. So it's really important. I hope I hope that made sense. I think it's part of what, what, what the bills that we're seeing. It's like an attempt to disrupt the chain of distribution of these products within the states. But that's what I'm seeing, especially on the in the Indiana and Illinois and Mississippi. Because there's some of these really really bad bills. All right, before we get, I want everybody to get a chance to speak. But before we go to the consumer side, which I really want to touch on, and the FDA side, I'm going to bring it to you, Kevin. And when you came to me with the idea of Vista. I think it was a year ago, maybe a little bit longer than that. I thought it was brilliant. So this is what we need. We need a lobbyist in every state that's going to represent you, the vendors. Uh, I truly believe that this is a vendor fight when it comes to legislation. Not that the papers can't help, not that your customers can't help, but hopefully we're going to get some tips today from Cassandra Militia on how you can guide your customers. But when you came to me, I thought it was a brilliant idea. So we create this Vista, we're going to get $40,000, $50,000 to get a lobbyist and everything. I, I thought it was a feasible goal. I really, <laughs> I really thought. So far, we've only been successful in two states, and we have Georgia that has formed the Georgia Smoke Association, and Utah that has formed the, the, their own association. They're going to come on board as well, too. So four states in a year, I was pretty disappointed. So what about the hurdles creating this stuff? Um, yeah, as a business owner, I thought it made perfect sense to me um, at the time that everyone who else was a business owner um, would also jump on board. They would see the, the value and the usefulness of it, and um, we would have lobbyists in every state capital by the end of 2015. Um, you can see that here we sit in February, the end of February 2015, and we have um, Florida and Tennessee, and um, Capital Access has been um, very generous in working with us and monitoring in Florida when we don't really have the infrastructure at this point to support them. Um, so, uh, basically, the whole idea uh, started because of, I saw I, I recognized about the same time that I formed the vaping convention circuit that um, the federal government, I understand this, um, I, I also have a law degree and I was a mediator, and I understand how the government works pretty well, and I used to be involved in politics as well, and the federal government works very quickly, I mean, very, excuse me, very slowly. And I could see, I could foresee probably within a year to a year and a half the amount of statewide legislation that could basically put us out of business or put 80 to 90% of people out of business well before FDA regulations made it uh, to be in effect you know, at the federal level. So we uh, bounced it back and forth with Dimitri for a little bit and we decided that we were gonna go ahead and, and give it a shot. And again, I thought it was gonna explode and it has not yet. And um, it, it's unfortunate, but it's situations that when you see a bill coming out that is gonna affect negatively your business, how then people get interested. Unfortunately, the opposite is what we need. We need people interested when there are no bills out because when there are, when there's no legislature in session, that's when the lobbyists are the most effective. That's when we need to be meeting with the legislators in every single state capital. That's when we need to be shaping public policy, writing bills and legislation, putting bugs in their mind about how we want the industry to be shaped from our perspective and not constantly reacting and putting out fires. You know, it, this year is it's been even more than I thought was going to be this year. I, mean, uh, I don't know about it. I mean, Gregory keeps a pretty good finger on the pulse of what's happening, as do a lot of the other people up here. But I, I think it's probably at least three times what I thought it was going to be so far this year. And it's not even over yet. We're only in February, as he said. So um, it's, it's extremely important to be proactive. And I'll add, sorry, if that, you're a Florida vendor tonight, before you go back to your hotel or tomorrow, I'm sure Kevin will be running around like a maniac. Talk to him because if you can come out to an advocacy session, I would really hope that you would be interested in getting involved 
And when you have active threats at your state, which you do, we're likely to have a huge tax bill put in in Florida. Uh, there's a drug paraphernalia bill that could be manipulated through various committees or on the floor to attack e-liquid. There's no reason not to, to talk to Kevin, join up with uh, uh, the Florida Smoke Free Association uh, and VISTA and encourage uh, other vendors in your local area or around the state to also get involved. Yeah. Julia, let me bring you up here quick. You know, I hear all the time from vendors, and sometimes I go hard, I go hard on vendors, and I, I, I apologize for that, but sometimes I hear from vendors, and there's a lot of confusion, and I can't blame them, I really can't. I mean, they're trying to run their business, you know, the business is exploding, they have all these employees, they're opening new shops, they're coming up with new, you know, it's, it's difficult to keep up with everything. So they say, well, who, where do I put my money in? <laughs> you know, who do I help? You know, they, they also want to see the, that quick return of what their money is going in, which is kind of difficult to do. There's all the groups that are up here doing a lot of work that we don't see, right? So how do we guide them? How do we guide depending on, on what position that they have in this industry on, on how to funnel their money? What is the best position to do that? And also, while you're on the microphone, how do they guide their customers? Because that's what, that's what Kassad does. Kassad's trying to get the Vapors Act of the people that support these stores to help them fight these upcoming bills. Yeah, well, it used to be, um, how many of you guys have been around for more than, say, four years? A few? Okay, so those of you who've been around for a few years, you know that in the beginning there really was CASA. I mean, that was it. The community was a very different community back then. We were smaller. Um, the people who were opening stores, we, we just knew everybody. And we didn't have enough resources as a community to do much of anything other than what we did, which was CASA. Over time, the community has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And guess what? It's time for us to grow up and act like an industry. Now, CASA does not represent businesses. We don't. You know, we've been incredibly fortunate over the years that businesses have donated to CASA. We're terribly appreciative, but we never hold our hands out to industry saying, give us money. What we ask is, although we take it, Okay. So I, I don't want to get up here and say never give us money, okay? I, I really don't want to do that. But, but we recognize that in order for this to survive, we've got... Thank you. It's not tax deductible, though. Um, in order for this whole thing to survive, industry has got to step up to the plate and it's got to organize. You've got to do that for yourselves. But from our perspective as consumers, you gotta do it for us too. You know, there's only so much that the consumers can do. And we recognize that there are tremendous demands on your finances. Um, and we're not gonna say, we don't generally speak to industry in this fashion. So I'm not gonna say, oh, you must join this organization, this organization, and this organization. But you do owe your consumers. I mean, you've got customers who look at you and they feel that you have literally saved their lives. I mean, I, every one of you has had customers come in, tears in their eyes because you gave them a way out and you owe something to them. You owe it to be in business because you're where we buy our products. And so I would, Casa has put out a new initiative where we're asking our consumers to do business with the businesses that are supporting advocacy. And that's not a, I mean, advocacy isn't only one thing. 
you know, we've got a list of things that we, we think that our consumers should be looking to for their businesses, but one of them is, you know, do they belong to a recognized industry group? Um, because we cannot, we're, we're well beyond the point where we can just put out a Facebook message or an email and say, hey guys, show up at the hearing and let's, you know, we're beyond that. You know, we, we've got organized opposition now and if we're going to survive, we need to be organized as well. That's a great point. And, um, and that's something that we're trying to do in Tennessee as well, too, with the decals that we put on the stores, letting the vapors know when they come in that they're part of the association. And also, by forming the association, what I try to do, what my idea was to be able to funnel money into these organizations as well, too. So we try to allocate from our budget. You know, we joined SPOT as an association, which was $7,500 a year. Uh, I think that's an acceptable amount for an association to, to, to join in. Plus all the vendors that are on the Tennessee Smoke Free Association automatically connect to SPADA. We gave a little bit of money to Casada, not a lot, because I still haven't paid the lobbyists. But if the budget you know, continues, we can fund the ABA and we can fund, the, we, we actually gave money to the militia again this year. So through one association, what we can do is, you, don't have, you give one check to the association, you don't have to worry about it, and then we can funnel the money to the, to the, federal, to the federal organizations that are out there. Joe, uh, get in here, you know, one of those things that, that I hear, um, they were trying to pass an indoor use ban, but they excluded the vapor shops. So all the vape shop owners said, okay, well, the vape shops are excluded now, we're fine. I mean, how, how are this, is the consumer supposed to react to that? <laughs> how am I supposed to react to this? Okay, I can vape in your shop, but I can't vape anywhere else, but I'm buying the products from you. So I think that's a little bit of the mentality that has to change as well, too. Unlike some of the other organizations, the militia has been kind of an interesting position, and in we've grabbed the most rabid, the most rampant, and the most the people who are the noisiest and put them to work. And some of our members are board members at Kassab. A lot of people don't realize that they're that they're people who've that passion, and all we've done is try to direct their passion. Now, when these types of things come up, too often we see a couple of answers that when they call us because they think we're the reachable ones and they say, that really doesn't affect me so I can just ignore it, right? No. It's, you still have to stay active and we've always promoted that you need to stay vigilant. One of the most confusing things for us as we came into this year was we spent the majority of our efforts through 2014 getting in people's faces and saying, hey, you want these dog tags, you've got to work for them. This is not something that you've given to you. You have to be active. And we got to 2015 and everybody said, are we still active? Does it really matter? I mean, there's no legislation in December, so I don't have to be a, an activist, right? I can go do something else. And it's kind of a crazy thought if you really think about it, because this has not become a, a holiday venture for someone. This is something that people have got to take on in a full-time and a constant vigilant na nature. And if you're having to dissect a bill to figure out what part doesn't apply to you, you've just screwed up. Because it all applies to you and you need to do something about it. If you don't know what to do, there's so many places to reach out now. A year ago, there were five phone numbers in my book if I had a question on what was going on. Thanks, Julie. She had three of them. Um, but now, when I go and look at my contact list, there are quite literally 100 people throughout the United States right now that at least understand what's going on and can help. There are so many resources. To see someone sitting on the fence and not acting is kind of crazy. And if you excuse me for one minute, Demetri, I'm gonna take one other tangent here. 
And I'm going to be. I'm going to say something very poignant. If you can't get involved in advocacy because your competitor is involved in advocacy, get out of the industry now. Wow. We don't want you here because I'm tired of picking up the phone and saying because so and so is involved, I can't be involved. When you're both out of business, it's not going to matter. Amen. Okay. It's just that simple. And, and there's nobody here big enough to sustain. <laughs> People say sometimes, oh, that company is big. They're trying to take over the world. Have you seen what RTR sold last year? Yeah, yeah you're not that big. Yeah. <laughs> Alex, calls to action. I want to touch on this briefly before I go to, to Azine. Definitely the call to action, its purpose is not just to share it on Facebook, right? I mean, we have to all agree on that, right? So what is the, the purpose of the call to action and how can vendors take that call to action to relay it to their consumers? Because ultimately, that reach of the consumer and the shot based on the call to action that Kassab puts out is the most effective. Yeah, so um, I also manage the Instagram account for Kassab and we get a lot of likes. Uh, I have no way of really tracking how much of that converts to action, um, but I suspect it's a fraction. Um, so yeah, it, it is really important. Obviously, you know, spreading the word is very helpful. I, I think probably our best recruiting tool is, is bad legislation. Um, we do provide, well, we don't provide it. It's for sale on our site. Um, we have the vendor kits that you can put. It takes up a minimal amount of counter space. Um, and obviously, you know, consumers should see that. They should be pointed to it. Um, please join Kassab, get on our email list. When something happens in your state or at the federal level, we blast out an email and activate everybody on that list. I mean, I'd like to say everybody, but it's actually probably around 10%, um, which I've heard is actually pretty good. Um, most advocacy groups, I think, pray for about 5%. Um, so obviously there are some very, very passionate consumers in this space. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, if, you, if you have an email contact list, that's very useful to rebroadcast that to all of your customers. If you have a Facebook page, please share our calls to action with everybody that's engaged with you. And most importantly, you guys have a really important opportunity every time somebody walks in the door, and that's to have a conversation about the issues facing the products that we, we really want. Um, and, and that's... I think a very important place to engage people and, and get them active. That's the majority of your customers are not online. You know, the, the online community seems like it's big because it's really loud, but it's not that big. Compared to the customers that come into your store, I guarantee you that 90% of them don't know about Kassab. And that's because through your stores, you haven't been able to relay what each group does. Um, Azim, let me get to you. Uh, and then I'm going to open up the microphone for questions for everybody that's here. So just give us uh, give us a little update of where we are uh, as far as the FDA regulations and what the future holds. Sure. Uh, well, first, I think this has been a really fascinating discussion on state issues. I've actually learned quite a lot. Um, but what I don't want people to forget about is the big elephant in the room, and that is FDA. How many people here know what the deeming regulation is? Okay, good song. Well, that's really the biggest thing that's gonna come down the line from the federal side of things. Just to give a quick um, overview, just because it sounds like a lot of people may not have, um, may not be familiar with it. In 2009, Congress passed the Tobacco Control Act, which gave FDA the authority to regulate tobacco products for the first time. Prior to that, 
FDA had no authority over how tobacco is regulated or manufactured and distributed. What that law did is what it, it defined a tobacco product very, very broadly as anything that's made or derived from tobacco and intended for human consumption. Now, how does that apply to e-cigarettes or e-liquid? Well, if it contains, if your product contains nicotine that has been derived from tobacco, as most, as all nicotine really is, then it technically falls within meaning of that definition. And so there was a, a case a couple of years ago, about five years ago now, where the court held that, okay, well, you know, basically, if an e-cigarette contains nicotine and it's in intended for recreational use, we're gonna call it a tobacco product. And FDA's position, which I don't agree with, is, is that that is the law that these products, if they contain nicotine, are tobacco and fall under this regulation, or under the law. But while the law broadly defined a tobacco product, it only gave FDA the immediate authority to regulate certain types of tobacco products. Cigarettes, cigarette tobacco, smokeless tobacco, and roll-your-own tobacco. That's it. Those four types of products are what are currently considered regulated tobacco products. But what the law also said is that FDA could deem other products that, are, that fall within meaning of that broad definition of tobacco to be regulated tobacco products. And so that's what FDA finally did last April. They proposed a rule that said anything that falls within that broad definition of what we consider to be a tobacco product, we are going to regulate and subject to the Tobacco Control Act requirements. Now, those requirements are very onerous. Um, the tobacco companies have struggled in a lot of ways to, to meet those requirements. I don't want to get into the nitty-gritty details. If you have questions about what those are, I can, I can talk about that in the Q&A session. But ultimately what it means, as Greg mentioned earlier, is that these products have been, you know, FDA has proposed them to be regulated products. Once that rule becomes effective, which the good news is it probably will take a couple of years, although FDA has stated that they are planning a final action later this year in, in June. Um, once that rule becomes effective, then all of those requirements that currently apply to tobacco companies, such as product registration, uh, in ingredient disclosure, testing requirements, pre-market authorization, which is the big one, which means you have to, before you can bring a new product to market, you're gonna have to go through FDA's pre-market application process, which is basically gonna put everyone out of business. Um, all those things are gonna be required eventually. And so, the question, you know, again, is the big elephant in the room. What I don't want people to forget is there is still an opportunity to advocate, advocate before FDA. FDA, the demon regulation comments ended in August. Um, the FDA received something like 100,000 comments, many of them from vendors in this community and, and e-liquid and e-cigarette manufacturers, but it's not enough. We need a bigger voice before FDA because it was just a couple of years ago where FDA thought that big tobacco was behind the, the, this entire industry. Um, and it's through the education, through industry associations that have been meeting with FDA that we've been able to educate them that that's really not the case, that this community and this industry is very different from big tobacco. So what I don't want people to forget is that the opportunity is still there to influence FDA. And if we can get that agency to agree and a public health benefit, then ultimately, 
all the state issues, I think, you know, will, will go away because you're gonna have the federal authority preempt on, on some of these big health-related questions. And so the opportunity exists, you can meet with FDA, you can submit comments to FDA, they've opened, opened up a number of uh, comment periods over the year. I'm helping my clients prepare comments for FDA, and I'm happy to talk more about that. As in, briefly, just one question. At almost every week now, I get one manufacturer, friend of mine, or just acquaintance tell me, you know, I just put in an ISO lab. I'm ready to go. I'm ready for the FDA. Bring it on. I'm, I'm ready to. As the dimming regulations now stand, as we know them now, because we haven't seen the final draft, how many people in the industry do you think can survive? Oh, honest number right now. I mean, I think it, if it becomes, if, it, if the rule becomes effective as drafted, probably just big tobacco. You know, they're the only ones that have the money and the capability to potentially put together these type of applications. Now again, once the rule becomes effective, there are certain things that won't kick in, even after the potential litigation, that won't kick in for a couple of years. Like the pre-market authorization requirement, that won't literally be due until two years after the effective date. But it will take several years to prepare the data that you need to submit an application. I mean, like like uh, panel mentioned here, you know, there's a number of products, number of flavor combinations, number of nicotine concentrations. These are all gonna be considered new tobacco products. Each one of them has to be subject to its own pre-market application. I mean, it's just mind-boggling if the rule comes down as effective, or as it's drafted down. So the key is, can we get FDA to, in, you know, use its enforcement discretion to create a different set of regulations for this industry than what currently applies to tobacco? And, and make no mistake about it, so this is some of the things that, that may, uh, maybe us, we don't see from the groups that are standing up here, especially Kassan, Spada, that they, they are ready to go when the FDA regulations come. I mean, they're doing a lot of work in the background that you guys don't see, I don't see. I'm just happy to be friends and I can find out about these things. But there are teams there ready to help you, but ultimately it's gonna fall down to you, the industry, and of course your employees and your consumers. All right. Um, do you want to touch on that really quick? Because we talked about the FDA in the meeting and, and some of the work that SPANA has done in the Congress, then I'm going to open up the mic. Yeah, since we started, I mean, SPADA, the, the thought of SPADA started in 2011 and we incorporated in early 2012. So we've been around for like three years and for three years we've been advocating for a separate framework. And for three years we've heard, actually for the first year and a half, we heard people say, no, that's not possible, no, that's not whatever. But I will tell you that Mitch Zeller, who's the director for the Center, of Tobacco, Center for Tobacco Products at the FDA, he has made statements in the public, in the press, that support vapor products. Now, the actions that the FDA have taken do not reflect his comments. However, it gives us hope that we still have an opportunity here. And to go back to everything that's been said earlier, the sense of complacency, I can tell you that when the deeming regs came out and it got out there, oh, well, we'll have another two years. I mean, the, the breath of relief on social media was painful. And it was like, no, that's absolutely not what's happening whatsoever. So you don't just have, and I, I wanna, say something else about what you said. There are a lot of groups out here, and I think that the point of unifying and working together is not that you 
pick them apart or decide that one is not worthy of you or whatever. I think the point of advocacy and trying to save your business and your industry is that you collaborate everywhere you possibly can. Some groups are better at something than others, but all of us up here try to work together. I mean, we really do. And there's no reason that you guys, you guys are the industry. I mean, Dimitri's gonna go back to his restaurant. I'll go get a corporate job. Greg will start, you know, putting people in prison. And, but you guys, this is your livelihoods. You know, there's no reason. Let's, let's spend more time working on the positive and less time working on the drama and the stuff that is not gonna help you save your business. Very well said. We do, we do have a lot of drama in this, in this community. I've been, I've been criticized of, of being very negative on social media, but it goes back to what you said. Like you, give, you give one good piece of news and everybody thinks that everything's done. We're fine now, okay, we're safe. And that's why I try to remain negative. I don't know. <laughs> I just want to say this again for all the Florida people here. Um, when I was mentioning earlier about uh, Capital Access, and if you see after the Capital Access on the cards, it also says slash SFD. Um, Jerry and Jamie have been working on an initiative called the Smoke Free Defense Fund, and it's it, you know kind of Jerry touched on it earlier, um, but they also will be forming a political action committee so that we can do more things um, politically within the state of Florida. Um, so if you have any questions or would like to talk to them about how you can contribute or get involved with the Smoke Free Defense Fund, it's going to be more than just in Florida, by the way. So for all you vendors who are not from Florida, that's something that we can work on getting uh, in. in it's, it's, it's a big collaboration, it's a big effort to do all the things that we're trying to do. Um, huge part of it is a smoke-free association in your state. We absolutely have to have that. We have to have a way to, that you guys can talk to the people on a local level and get money to Vista, for instance, to get a lobbyist there. Smoke-free defense is another way for, for you guys to be able to do that in your localities. And um, I think it's a great initiative and it touches on more than way, way more than just lobbying. Uh, political action committees are um, extremely powerful and beneficial for us and, and again everyone in every industry has it except for in the vaping industry and then just a, a final thing um, TD from Moon Mountain and a couple of people in the audience Jordan from Steam Train Vapor they've been uh, Paul DePozo as well from South Florida they've been working extremely hard on getting the uh, Florida Smoke Free Association set up here in Florida uh, based on the model that Dimitri and Eric have implemented in Tennessee and um, I think they're about ready to launch it if they haven't launched it already and uh, for, again, for all the Florida businesses, it's extremely important that you talk to, to TD and Jordan and, and Paul and get information on how you can get involved with the Florida Smoker Association as well. And if, if you have any questions, if you don't have an association in your state and you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me or Eric Peterson, which is the president there in Tennessee, and we can help you. We, we can give you the template. I mean, it's not difficult to do. If I can do it, anybody can do it, trust me. All right, uh, questions? I have a couple of questions, mostly for, for Jamie. How much money do we need? How much money do I need to know the number? What's the number that we need for one legislative session in Florida? And then I have a question for Craig and Cynthia as well. Well, that's a difficult answer. I mean, it's a difficult question because one of the things that it was touched on earlier, and it probably wasn't said this bluntly, but you know, tobacco and big farm have been spending millions of dollars per year for decades. It was also said earlier, and I think this is correct, that um, that you don't need that much money to defeat to, to, to defeat a bill. 
Now, to be proactive, it's, it costs more. It costs more money because you're asking lobbyists to put their reputation on the line to basically say, okay, for the rest, for the most part, in the Florida Capitol, I'm known as the e-cigarette guy, and I'll be known that forever. I think about sixty to eighty-five thousand dollars for an entire year. That's lobbying, and if. Uh, the effort requires a significant amount of PR. If, it, if the bills can be killed, bottled up, shaped, uh, and put to rest without a, a significant amount of uh, earned media or purchased media, then you know it's probably a fifty to sixty thousand dollar a year effort. Kevin, by the way, through uh, a lot of vendors, has been raising some funds towards that. He's been paying about fifteen hundred dollars a month uh, through those members who have stepped up, uh, but he's still short. So he's probably still going to have to raise I don't know probably forty forty five thousand through the year. Uh, that's comparable to what Demetrius is doing, uh, about 40000 for uh, the annual. Much was 40000 for a defensive stance, and I mean, the lobbyists oh, put it out Well, and that's, and that, that's not, the state as well, too, I guess. And that does not, well, the thing is, that doesn't include, that doesn't include a single contribution to a single politician. That's basically to cover your lobbyists and their efforts, their communications efforts. So if you're, you know, there's, if you're talking about a big tobacco company, they walk around with five, $10,000 checks to committee chairmen. Now we have relationships, we're able to bust those doors down a little bit, but from a financial standpoint, that's what we're facing. Big farmers running around with 20, or big insurance running around with $25,000 checks. Let me make another comment on that. Um, need to be be careful about how you look at this too. You know, you've got organizations up here, CASA, ESPADA, uh, um, the militia, others, who are extraordinarily effective on your behalf. They've been in this space for a long period of time. They are full up, no kidding, effective uh, organizations that have memberships and content and research. This smoke-free defense, it's none of those. It doesn't want memberships. It doesn't want to be a club. It doesn't want to have a uh, doesn't want to advertise, doesn't want to do anything. It is strictly a political action committee uh, defense fund. And you need to look at your budget that you put aside for your advocacy, for your representation, as not just going out and hiring a lobbyist. It's that plus making sure that you are paying your memberships for these types of organizations that you also need. You don't just need one, you need both. And as far as raising political funds for political activity, for lobbying, for PR, and ultimately for political activity, campaign contributions, don't just think of your own state. As a couple of the members have stated eloquently, you guys are in this together. And if you don't uh, stick together, uh, who was it? Uh, Benjamin Franklin said, uh, you know, if we don't hang together, we'll uh, hang as a group or whatever. You'll all go down together. You, ha you have to stick together, not just in Florida. So you've got to budget funds to be politically active. The Smoke-Free Defense Political Action Committee, that's not just Florida. Uh, we want to make sure that funds are available to anybody in any state that has a bill that they're getting pounded on and they need help hiring lobbyists to go beat it back. Pamela, you wanted to add some that? Yeah, I just want to add, I, on behalf of Enjoy, um, am a professional government affairs person, so everybody here kind of represents a piece of the work. My job is kind of an architect over all of those pieces, and you have to have all the pieces. So you have the lobbyist, who you're basically renting relationships from. They've got the relationships, you don't. You pay them, 
you get to access their relationships and you get information from them that isn't public yet. It's very valuable, key part of it. You have the third party public policy experts. This uh, wonderful person on the end here, Paul, represents the tax issue. But there's other groups that you've seen things published. They're out there. They take donations. They are an important part of the ground fire, if you will, because they affect public opinion. Guess who votes for politicians? Public. So one of the things I do is try to support, educate, and inspire the think tanks or the third party policy groups. We've, we've personally at NGOA fund some of them as much as we can because we want their lights to stay on and we want our issue to be one that they want to work on every single day because it's exciting and fun. So we stay, we make sure they have the information they need. So you gotta have a lobbyist, you gotta have a surprise, but then you have the boots on the ground. Several of the groups up here represent the consumers that are the boots on the ground. You got the stores that are the boots on the ground, completely different animal, different talking points when you go in the door, different part of the job. Does that kind of make sense? There's all these pieces that work together. You don't have to be an expert at that. And I think Dimitri said it well, you write a check, it's turnkey. Somebody else knows how to do it and they'll take care of it for you. But I also wanted to clarify, I do 22 states, the lobbyists that work for me, the fees are dramatically different in different marketplaces. Florida is a very, very big market. You know, you notice in elections, everybody's always fighting over Florida because there's so many people here. Same with Texas, California, and New York. So in those places, you know, you're lucky in California if my lobbyist there is $7,500 a month and that is a screaming deal. Most lobbyists there go for about fifteen to 30000 a month. In Oklahoma, I was paying my gal 4000 a month and I was probably one of her highest paying clients, but I needed her time right then because we were fighting a tobacco company head to head over a tax. So you see how there's a big spread and and so when you're considering hiring, um, I'm sorry, considering joining a group, the value to you is that you're not writing a check for $10,000 a month if you're a California business. I mean, you can if you want. There's, I know there's one big company in Washington right now I'm helping find a lobbyist. And he said, can you train my lobbyist too because I'm not gonna know to tell him, which I'm happy to do. But he can write a check every month for three, $4,000 to hire somebody in the state of Washington. If you can't write a check every month, and you're in Florida, I'm guessing it's probably five or 6,000 a month here because it's such a big state. About right. So if you can't write $60,000 worth off of your profits for the year just to protect your business in Florida, then you know what? It's really smart to join forces with your competitors. You don't have to like them. You she just right. have to survive. Right. You, have, you have to combine your resources. Yeah, that's the goal of the FSFA. And this, or, is to get the smoke-free defense fund funded, get VISTA funded, um, bring all of you together so we can disseminate information down to you so you know, you stay in the know, you can get it to the consumers, um, and we can get money to Safada and the American Vaping Association. Because we will, we will be able to take a big pool of money and disperse it to where it needs to go. And you as an individual shop owner may not know where to turn. And we are in constant, talks with these people here on the panel so we we can stay in touch and in tune with what the industry is doing. So to your point, I mean, that's exactly what we're, we're organized for. One more question here. That's why I asked, because to echo Pamela's point is that, you know, capital access, they need a certain number, 
right? So I don't even need to know what that number is from being on the board of NSFA. We got to come up with that number, right? And then I don't even know what Greg's number is and Cynthia's number is. We know this is the amount of money we need to raise, right? And if that's the if that's it, sixty to eighty thousand with all the shops in Florida, that's a doable. It's a, such an incredible. It sounds doable. doable. <laughs> 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 let, let me just say something about that. About that, Jordan. Here, here's my goal. I mean, last year when we started this, and I think FSFA can probably take up this goal. A hundred shops at a thousand to twelve hundred dollars a year. That would have been enough money to fund everything we just talked about in Florida. How many shops are there in Florida? How many shop owners know? are in this room? I have. How many shop owners are part of FSFA right now? Or Vista. Or Vista. That's sad. Or any state group. So that's the key here. We have to put our differences aside, our egos aside, and just agree at least 75% that what we want to do is we want to keep this industry alive. If you can agree with that, I think you can oversee all the drama and the ego. I'm coming to you, Rob. My name is Rob Smith, and I'm from uh, multiple stores in multiple states. And first, I'd like to say thank you guys for everything you do, every conference I go to, you guys are there. And unfortunately, this room is half empty. I, I don't. I, I stress everything that you guys stand for, what you do. Um, because I'm in multiple states, um, I, I, it's just really difficult for me. I, I just wished I could figure out a way to pick you guys up and take you to each individual area and make people listen to you. Um, there's very few people in either of the two states, and there's not really any really regulation going on right now that will stand up and do anything. But I'm just wondering, um, with y'all's extinct. Esteem knowledge. Is there? What about the little guys? What about the guys where you know? I'm not in Florida. I don't have these guys working with me. I have what other uh, what they consider competitors that don't want to have anything to do with me because I'm their direct competition. Even if I come in and ask, "Hey, we need to sit down. We need to do this together." Um, what advice do you have? I mean, what avenue do we have, um, the smaller guys, you know, that, and I'm spread out, our, our company's in two different states, and I work closely in one state, and we've done really good with legislation in that state, but the other state, they don't want to hear about it, they don't care. And like everybody in this room, we have everything that we own tied up in this business. What states are you in? We're in Arkansas and Alabama right now. Okay, Alabama's not in session, so you're staying there right now. Um, is there, I know you guys, you said you're filming this, is there some way to access this panel? Yeah, so tonight we are filming the event in its entirety, we're going to have it professionally edited and, and, and ready to disperse, hopefully by sometime within the next week or two, so that you guys can pull it off of every one of our websites if you want to, and share it with people and, and give them the knowledge that they need to get involved. And to answer your question, what can you do if there's competitors in it? You need, you need to really talk to Dimitri and TD and these people that are forming these three associations. I have, to get, I have to congratulate this man here because last year he invited me to go to his shop in Arkansas to speak on advocacy. He invited every shop owner in that city to come to his shop on figuring out how to come together and work. This is, I mean, it was truly amazing to see other shop owners come over there and they effectively got something going in Arkansas. Now, he attempted to do it in Alabama and um, yeah, it wasn't very, very successful. But uh, I can tell you the struggles that I've had in Tennessee. You know, we've got a membership of 43, 47 shops now on board in Tennessee, which is pretty good, far from what we want it to be. But we just did it. 
You know, we, so we just started, we got commitment from 20 shops that they're gonna help fund this, and we just launched it. And what we're seeing is that slowly, even the doubters or the people that didn't want to help are starting to turn out because they're realizing the pressure from these state bills that are coming around them, you know, with Kentucky and Mississippi, and it could easily come to Tennessee. So it's it's just a matter of just doing it. You know, I mean, I know, I know it sounds simple, uh, but he does bring up a good point uh, for the panel, whoever wants to tackle that. He does bring a good point. When I go into a store and I talk to him, or if Eric goes, he runs into the same situation. They're like, oh, you're trying to scare me. None of this is gonna happen. It's very hard to get this picture that we have here and relay it to a shop owner in various states. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, Demi, it's really not that hard. In fact, um, Greg and Pamela and myself had a, an extremely wonderful visit to the state of Washington in January where a vendor said, I need to get this state talking about the same thing. And he found a room, he called Pamela, he called myself and Greg, and we put him in there. And there were, what, 40, 45 vendors in there and the discussion started. So you can't give up hope. All you gotta do is have a room. You can get a body. There will be somebody who will go there and will help you. All you gotta do is extend the invitation. It, it, it's disheartening though, it really is. Even for the advocates there, there are people that are doing this for the passion. It really is, I mean, look at this room here. I thought people were calling me, can I get a table, everything was full, and the room is still half empty. So people like me and Eric and, the, and, and Rob, I mean, it becomes disheartening trying to how do we wake them up? You know, how do we just put it in their head that this is going to happen? So, when we find that that answer, I hope I hope things will turn around. Hey, my name is Aaron. I own Space Jam Juice from California. Um, first of all, I just want to say thank you guys for doing this and everybody coming out. It's taken me and my company a long time to get involved, and now that we finally are. I'm glad to be here, and I wish I could see more of our competitors here. But. Um, I've heard a lot of different answers to this question, so I'm curious on the federal level with the deeming regulations, um, I've heard with registering the product, it could cost a million dollars per SKU, it could cost this, that, um, and I'm curious if any of you know what that dollar amount is and what exactly is a SKU, is every flavor, every milligram strength considered that, is it just the milligram strengths? So what does that really mean when that comes down? It seems probably be the best too. Well, that's a very good question, and frankly, FDA doesn't, quite know yet what they're going to do. But what has been proposed is that every different combination of e-liquid, if we're just going to talk about this particular category, would be a separate tobacco product under the law, if it contains nicotine. Again, if it doesn't contain nicotine, then it doesn't. none of this applies. That's, again, it's another question. But in terms of a dollar amount, uh, I mean, the registration and product listing requirements, that's not going to be too expensive. I mean, you, you know what products you have. What FDA wants to know, and what FDA wants to make sure that you know, is what's going into your products. It is your responsibility to know who your suppliers are, down to the chemical identities of, of the components in your products, even the flavors, um, which are formulated and can contain impurities. Um, FDA wants to know what's in your vapor. You know, so testing your vapor that's produced at, you know, different settings, um, in a device is important for a manufacturer to know because ultimately that's going to be the kind of data that FDA is going to require that you submit. Now that's going to cost a lot of money to develop. I know some companies are being proactive and they're working with laboratories to get their products tested. Um, it's hard to do that without having a regulation in place to tell you what to do or to what you know what analytical method to use and what limit of detection to use. You know, there's a lot of questions out there, but that testing is going to cost a lot of money. And then we get to the pre-market application process. 
And that's, I mean, to answer those questions that they're asking in that application requires uh, more than any one company can, can develop in terms of the data. Because FDA is asking about the public health impact of these products. So it's not asking about, well, how does this product affect the individual vapor, but what impact will this product have on overall tobacco use? You know, the gateway question. Will it, will it cause people who otherwise would have quit smoking to not? Or will it be, you know, attracting people who otherwise wouldn't have smoked at all to start smoking? I mean, those are the kind of high-level public health questions that no one vendor or one company has the ability to answer. That's the kind of stuff that you need long-term data where everyone is contributing, uh, you know, through associations, through, you know, um, you know, working with your competitors to develop that data over a number of years. Aaron, I have that beef. I have, because, oh, you know, I have a lot of guys in the industry, or a lot of friends that manufacture e-lib like yourself. And everybody's doing stuff without, we don't know. We really don't know, you know, what classification of ISO is going to be. We don't know that. Is it good that companies are doing it? Yeah, but could we use maybe half that money to, you know, fund one of these guys over here, one of these groups over here? I think it would go more into use now if the money was used that way instead of trying to get prepared to sustain the unknown at this point. The last application, by the way, was snooze right as for a modified how many, risk and for modified for how much how many pages long was that application Thirty thousand, does i recall most of those were signed that is one product it's 30 feet of shelf space yes and i, I just want to add when azim brought up the pre-market authorization that's not for new products that's for every single product that you are using in this room right now any product post 2007 would require a PMTA. And Kevin Altman, who's a tobacco consultant, long time, um, he estimated at Safada's Chicago conference last year that bare minimum, one to 1.5 million per SKU. And that's actually probably gonna be more with vapor products because the FDA, one of the points that RJ Reynolds made in their FDA comment where they advocated for the FDA to ban all e-liquids, ban all open vapor products and ban most flavors, is that open vapor products present a unique, um, a unique, not a threat, but a unique regulatory situation where you're all selling liquid that can be used in 150 different devices at at infinite settings, at all this, so we have no idea what the FDA is actually going to require for e-liquid, and the FDA itself, they only estimated in their economic impact analysis that they've received applications for several dozen, dozen new tobacco products, and that's not just talking about e-cigarettes, that's talking about hookah products that were going to remain on the market, or other new dissolvable products. And the last thing I'll add is that for the past four years, tobacco companies, cigarettes, cigarette tobacco, uh, roll your own, and uh, smokeless tobacco, they have had the opportunity to put in <coughs> new tobacco product applications. How many new tobacco product applications have been put in by Big Tobacco? Zero. How many applications have been submitted to the FDA to market a new tobacco product in total? Four. How many are the FDA reviewing right now? Zero, because the FDA said all those four companies, eh, we're not gonna accept your filing, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. So you know what, we're not even gonna take it. 
They use that kind of regulatory burden and pressure to just keep new applications out of their hands. So the last thing that the FDA wants, and it's our hope that this will lead to some changes, whether it's from the FDA itself or by Congress, the last thing the FDA wants is 100,000 applications for your watermelon in 24, 18, 12, et cetera. And then you got the 30 milliliter and the 10 milliliter and you got the extra flavor and you got this and that, uh, BGPG. So that's the regulatory uh, conundrum that is going is threatening this industry. Hi, my name's Courtney. I own a couple shops in Austin, all about vapor. I'm just here to say thank you guys. Um, we attended the summit in Chattanooga and it was fantastic. Um, not only did it help open our minds to a lot of things, but we've started our own organization, uh, Tiva, and with a couple more shops, we will be contacting Vista soon to be contributing what we can. Um, so thank you all for everything. Dimitri, Kevin, everybody on the panel, we really appreciate everything you're doing, and it's not only up to y'all. Um, vape shop owners that truly care about this industry really need to get behind it. Uh, we started because my 70-year-old grandmother bought me a vapor pen, or whatever you want to call it. I hate using the word cigarette because I don't smoke anymore. Um, but So thank you guys very much. This industry means a lot to us. Uh, not only is it supporting my family, it's supporting over 30 employees that we have and growing continuously, opening a third shop soon that will hire another 15. So not only are we helping people live healthier lives, we're creating jobs in the, in the, in the state. So we appreciate everything you guys do. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. By the way, Courtney funded that entire organization <laughs> in Texas by herself, her company. I have to say that because it's unfair. I mean, I think it's unfair. To, and a state like Texas, but thousands of vape shops, I think, it's not thousands, it's pretty, pretty close to a thousand. She funded the whole thing by herself. And, and she, she touched a, on a really good point. She has 30 employees and maybe another 15 employees. So, Brian, do me a favor. What can Courtney do on a local level with the state representatives to bring them in and show that economic impact and that workforce that can relate to money eventually for his you know, campaign, but also the votes that are attached to just this one specific company? I. Um, Gives me an opportunity. There, there's something that's been said here a few times about offense and defense, and that that makes me nervous when you're talking about legislation because I mean we are defensive. I, I would suggest we switch the terminology to proactive versus reactive. Um, but I, I wouldn't advocate anybody introducing legislation related to these products in any state at any time under no circumstances. Um, but in terms of the direct question, I think it's important to engage with uh, not only legislators, but also, like you've stepped up and tried to organize and, and you're involved with CASA and Safada and, and others, but be a part of the community. If you have a local chamber of commerce, um, you know, the Kiwanis, the Lions Club, whatever it is, to uh, join, meet the people that own the businesses up and down your street and say, this is what we are. You probably heard a lot of things. Here's a flyer. This is what we do. And we just, you know, we want to be, it's about being good neighbors and being proactive and being part of the community. It was also mentioned, you know, earlier how, you know, we do have sort of an insular world. We're, we're all on Facebook and Twitter and we're talking back and forth and it seems like a lot of people and a lot of noise. But we're never going to win until we get outside of this room and outside of this group. So people who are not smokers, never have been smokers, um, 
have some connection to us and, and an ability to understand what what we're all about because there's so much misinformation out there but i would being proactive in a lot of different ways i would just like to add texas is in my region <laughs> and you have a great website by the way i didn't know that was you i just put um but your members should be and this is part of proactive thing i just want to follow up on that if you haven't personally reached out to your own city councilman county commissioner if you have one state representative or assemblyman whatever you call them in your state as well as your senator that represents you where you live you probably have one possibly different than where your shop is go see them both it's very important to establish those lines of communication texas is lucky their legislature doesn't meet every year um, but everybody has a period of time where it's a little bit slower in your legislature. There's a tendency to think to let your lobbyist go and we're all going to go home and do something else. As Dimitri said, that's when you need to be in there meeting with those people. Call them up. You know, you go in, it's very simple. It's the same thing you're doing at your booths when people walk up. Hi, I'm so-and-so. My company is called this. We have this many people that work. We'd like to explain to you what our products are and who describe you our consumers that come into our store. And if you ever have an issue come up in your state related to our industry, I hope that you'll consider me a resource that I can give you the real facts of what's going on. That is the most important thing you can do before a bad bill comes. Once a bad bill comes, you know what you are? You're the greedy 1% that's just trying to defend your bottom line. Much better to go in before they decide to call you a greedy corporate interest, because that's what everybody is when you own a business, apparently. So just to add to that, ask your lobbyists to make a list for you of the key legislators that you should get to know. Obviously, um, uh, as Chenyu as she was saying, uh, Pamela, your local legislator, House and Senate, but have him or her make a list for you of the other key members, the key officials who are chairing the key committees, who have filed bills in the past. Uh, he'll know exactly, or she'll know exactly what you're asking for. Uh, and expand beyond that. Also let him know where your other shops are and, and get him, force him, make him work for you. Make him make a list of the key legislators in those other areas as well. Or all of the places where you have the shops. Uh, my, my name is Jason, I'm with the shop in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, this is kind of more for the lobbyists. Um, we get a lot of customers that come in for reasons other than to stop smoking. And I know our biggest battle is always healthier alternatives, you know, better way to quit. But we do have a lot of customers that come in and buy zero nicotine products that have never smoked for things such as weight loss, nervous habits, stress, all sorts of things. But they are buying zero nicotine products and have never smoked. Is there any kind of conversation within the government on other fronts other than just cessation products? Cessation products? I don't know if there's a discussion, but I will say this, that, that type of testimony, that type of input, that type of information you should get to Erica Vick and, and Dick Lodge at Bassberry. Those, that's the lobbying firm that we hired uh, in Nashville for uh, Tennessee Smoke Free through Vista. Uh, or vice versa, but Erica and Dick could really use that type of testimony. Uh, it, it gives them an added image or an added, added theme that they can use in their communication with 
uh, members as they push back on that RDR bill. They could work against us, though, too. But your lobbyists will know how to work that in your favor, and that's what you're hiring them to do. Oh, and I know that's a double-edged sword, especially when you tell somebody, yeah, they've never smoked, and now they're doing this. Yeah. 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 No, we're, all, we're under the microscope, always trying to, now we're creating new customers. We're trying to create a new generation of that, whether it has zero name or not. That's not good. I mean, you have to understand that these politicians, and most of society has been trained, when they see that coming out of your mouth, to associate it with cancer. That is a stigma that we just can't avoid. And actually, that stigma is getting bigger and bigger as the resistance is dropping. Let's be honest, right? So when they see it coming out of your mouth, automatically the brains are trained that this is cancer. This is going to give me cancer. So that's a very hard image to, to overcome. You got a question there in front? You want to pass the microphone right there? Yes, I do. Thank you. Yes, yes, go ahead. So people come in and they look for an alternative, and you can talk about cessation and that kind of thing. But the fact of the matter is, is that right now these are not cessation products. We were invited, Fada was invited to a closed door meeting. It's called the Morvan Dialogues last October. And it was, the, it was really great because it shows that the vapor industry is legitimate. So they invited us to this thing and it was about tobacco harm control, harm reduction. And there, the big tobacco guys were in there. There were tons of scientists. The Legacy Institute was in there. The Schroeder Institute was in there. There were all these university guys. You know the people that write all those nasty scientific articles about vapor? They were in the room. There were 50 people, just under 50 people, in the room, and they were talking about this. And somebody said, one of the professors, I, I can't say his name, but he said, well, you know what? He said, I don't trust your industry because you guys, and I was the only one there representing Vapor, and he said, because you guys run around saying that these are an alternative product, that these are a lifestyle product, and if you really cared about saving people's lives or about you know, harm reduction or quitting smoking, that's what you would say. And I said, Oh my God. So the way that it worked over there is that when you wanted to say something, you had to take your little name card and you had to go like this. There was no hand or anything like that. And you had to wait until they got around to your standing. So I'm literally like falling out of my chair to stand my thing up, you know? And I said to him, I said, listen, I said, it's marketed as an alternative product because the FDA has tied our hands and we can't call it a cessation product. I said, but people, that's what got them into this industry that they found something that worked for them and they want to be able to give it to other people. I'm like, so you would take the handcuffs off and watch how everybody changes. But until that happens, you guys be careful about how you market your products because you don't want to put yourself in the crosshairs. And I tell everybody, we actually have a Texas chapter. I hope we can work together with you. Um, and I tell everybody, don't volunteer more information than what you were asked because you don't know if it can be used against you. I mean, I saw that Dimitri went there immediately, Pamela went there, I went there, Greg was, you know, we're all just like, up here. Yeah, we were all like, you know. Because you have to think like two, three, sometimes nine steps ahead. And you're busy, you're doing stuff. So stick to what it is that you, you know, stick to that. Don't offer any extra. Don't give additional input because you might not know where it's gonna go and we have enough battles as it is. I'm not, I'm not being a downer. I'm trying to help you because we're all having little mini heart attacks up here. Go ahead. Hi, thank you. Hi, my name is Jeannie Bishop. I, my husband and I own a business, Peerless Vapor, in Florida, and we only started about a year and a half ago. 
So I have to say, all of this information is a ton of information, a lot. I couldn't write fast enough, so thank you for that. Um, the acronyms, the, the CASA, <laughs> the ESPADA, the SFSA, Militia, VISTA, Smoke Free Defense, you know, the American Vaping Association, all sounds very intriguing, and you know, there is a fear of the unknown when you're new in the market. For that reason, I still have a foot in corporate America. My husband is 100% out of corporate America running our business, but there is a fear of the unknown. Who do we hitch our wagon to? There are so many different organizations. Where do we start? Um, and then with that, we're going to be here tomorrow. Are you guys going to have a set-aside booth or area where we can have one-on-ones? Yes. Because, by the way, here. Cynthia, you said, hey, just say you're in. We're in. Yeah. We're in. Who's yeah. one Okay. <laughs> And I have far too much uh, craziness going on at the time with state legislation, so I'm heading out tomorrow afternoon, but I will be around. Uh, if you look for a suit jacket, I'll probably be the only one. <laughs> 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 Not tomorrow. <laughs> a state association, to answer your question, I think a state association, I mean, to me, I think it's worked. Is that the solution for everything? No, but that's what I figured out doing Tennessee to get the vendors organized. So I think attaching yourself to the, uh, to the Florida Smoke Free Association that is going to help the rest of the groups over here. I think that's a logical first step. And it's plus something that's going to give you the, the opportunity not to have to sit there and, and dive into each of one of these groups. Let them do all the hard work for you by joining your state association. I think that's, I think that's a great step for anybody in this industry at this point. I would agree. I'm just going to add, I would agree that if, you, if, if you're a small, small startup, if there's only one action you can take, only one check you can write, the state association, especially in a state where you already have one set up and you have active threats coming at you, uh, it should take precedent and then look at all the other options, the national groups. And I would say it costs nothing to make sure all of your customers are made aware of what CASA is and Thank you, encouraged to join CASA and have a flyer and let them know about the website and what they do and how important they are if people want to continue using the products and, and the service they provide for their and there's a kit. and the we're militia the as kit. well. We're gonna yeah. definitely get the kit. Yeah, because <laughs> I you know I spent a lot of time telling you how we don't ask for your money, which kills my soul to say that. <laughs> and I'm still hoping that we still get some because it is important. We we have no paid employees. I you know totally volunteer. Um, we're grassroots and all that, but I did want to tell you what we do expect of the vendors real quick. Can I do that? Sure, sure. Okay, so what we do ask of you though is that you let your customers know about CASA. Membership is free. We have no barriers to joining. Um, we have no business memberships, but anybody who is an individual can join. So Joe Blow can join as an individual. Joe Blow Vapor Company cannot. Um, but it, it really is important because the more members that CASA gets, the more credibility we have, the greater our reach, and the better our ability to help fight some of these legislative battles. Just to give you some idea, our, our big goal this year is to grow our membership. Last year when we met with, um, I guess, OMBO IRA, um, I went in there saying we've got almost 8,000 members. And truthfully, we were probably about 300 short of that. Um, 8,000 is what I said. Okay, so now today, how many do we have? Uh, 41,600 and climbing. Yeah. And, well, that, 
I hope you guys are applauding yourselves because the reason why that has grown is because vendors have recognized the importance of providing the CASA information to their customers to help activate the customer base. Because as everybody keeps saying, most of the world is not online in terms of vaping. And so we really, really, really rely on the vendors to put us in touch with the consumers. And then my last thing is Dimitri's gonna like cut off my microphone, I know him. Um, you know, to the extent that you heard that you're not probably in a position to be making health claims in marketing, because if you do that, the FDA can declare that you're a drug and an unapproved one at that. Um, and so your hands really are tied a bit in terms of marketing, but CASAs are not. As a consumer group, we're allowed to tell the truth that you're not allowed to. Um, and so that is also information that you can give to your customers let them know um, that, yeah, this is literally saving lives. All right, I'm done, sorry. Go ahead, sir. Hey, I'm Frank Blankenship, and I'm with Lucky Ruckus in Amarillo, Texas. And I just wanted to say, first of all, thank you to everybody that's sitting up there because you guys have all made a big difference in what we're doing in Texas. And I also wanted to share a little success story. In January, the Safada member of Texas had 18 members. Today, it has 64. So there's a lot of things going on in Texas to help us and we need it. And I'm also glad that I saw Courtney because now I know who y'all are. Um, and I'm sure we'll be talking, but the key to the fellow that asked the question back here about how to get shops on board, what I'm seeing is it's communication. Um, and it's face-to-face -face communication and phone calls. Social media goes a long ways, but once you start calling people and going into shops and talking to people and telling them what's going on, because the reality is, I mean, in Texas, there's probably over a thousand shops. And to hear that there was 18 Safada members was just mind boggling. I couldn't believe that. Um, a lot of people that are doing what we do every day have no idea what we're up against. In Texas, there's 11 bills filed. And some of them are really damaging to us. And there's, there's a ton of shops opening that have no idea that they're even out there, let alone what they can do about them. So it's communication, communication, communication. And again, thanks to everybody up there that's helped us get where we are today. Yeah, I think one of the hard problems I want to touch on that real quick is, you know, we don't have the budgets of the American Lung Association, American Cancer Association. They spend money actively on PR to raise more money. So they're spending money on people, how to bring more money into the organization. I mean, in Tennessee, we're all volunteers. So I mean, we, don't, we all have jobs. It's very difficult to reach out, as you said. And, and I, I think vendors reaching out to other vendors is more effective. If you can turn to your fellow vendor, or even your competitors say, hey, listen, we don't have to compete here. We can coexist. I think that's been really effective, and I think in Tennessee has worked as well. We reached that kind of adventure. We don't have the sources to visit every shop in Tennessee, and I'm sure it's very difficult for you to visit all the shops in Texas, especially with over a thousand there. But reaching out to within your circle with all the, the other vendors and say, hey, get on board here. Let's do something good for the industry. I think it's going to be very, very helpful. All right, anybody has any more questions? Yes. Sorry, I know it's getting late. Everybody wants to go home. One last question. Um, uh, it seems like and it's really important, obviously, but it seems to be sort of a top-down strategy of going after the legislative end of this. Is there anything being done and or what more can be done to specifically change just like public perception? Because I know we can still, I get in an Uber or a taxi or whatever, and I'm like, can I vape? And 90% of the time they have questions about it. it's cancer-causing and it's bad and all these kind of things. And is there anything being done to just help change the public's perception? Well, that's what... One of the big things that ABA is trying to do, because we just had a study come out this week where they polled 
uh, Americans, and 49% accurately believe that e-cigarettes and vaping were less hazardous than smoking. And something like 35% said more hazardous than smoking, 20-30% said more, possibly more hazardous than smoking, or just as hazardous as smoking. And so that is a huge problem, and it's because of the concerted effort by uh, big pharma-backed companies, uh, big pharma-backed charities like Long Heart and Cancer, uh, as well as a lazy news media, uh, often at the local level, that has no understanding of science, but they understand that um, if it bleeds, it leads. And so ABA, for instance, when the formaldehyde story came out, perhaps the most damaging story from the past three months where they cranked up a, a, C, a, a vapor product using a C4 tank and put it up to 12 watts, and lo and behold, when you puff it for five seconds over and over again, it produces a burnt, dry hit that no human would ever use. When I found out about that study about three, four days before publication, I was able to speak to the Associated Press and get quoted and speak to NPR, speak to Health Day, which gets syndicated all across the US. And thankfully, thank you. Thankfully, somebody not in the media also sent me that study, so I was able to break the embargo myself and send it out to Kassav, send it to Dr. Farsalino, send it to Clive Bates. And as a result, when that media storm happened, we couldn't stop the media storm. I tried to convince the AP reporter, this study is garbage and all, the, all your report is going to do is misinform and scare people. Didn't work. She still wrote the article, but she quoted me explaining why the study was junk. And Reuters <laughs> quoted Clyde Bates explaining why the study was junk. And Dr. Farsalino's got in places. So unfortunately, there's only so much that can be done to combat, combat this misperception, but through editorials, through working with the news, uh, the news media, um, and through publicizing positive studies that come out, we are making some headway against all the lies and misinformation. PR, Byron, PR. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the, my plans this year, and you're on my list, by the way, because I've already uh, talked to so many local manufacturers. Getting positive PR out there, that costs money. A lot of money. And, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to help Greg with the ABA through this movement that I'm trying to get to funnel more money, to be able to hire those big PR companies, to be able to get the studies out there. And it's, it's a joint effort. I mean, it always goes back to the same thing, money, right? I mean, that's basically, but we're not the online community we were five years ago where everybody knew your name, right? We've grown into a $5 billion industry. Who knows what's gonna happen in the next couple of years? It's time to pay to play now. That's, I think that's where, where we're at. Go ahead, Brian. I, I would like to add a little perspective that maybe is uh, good news and makes people recognize the progress that has been made. I'd like to end with good news, yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> I've worked on harm reduction in one form or another. I started in state government relations in 1996, and I worked in smokeless tobacco. Uh, in, shortly thereafter, it really became well-known, and Kassa obviously is, is well aware and works on this, that the real problem with tobacco isn't tobacco, it's burning tobacco and breathing it into your lungs hundreds of times a day over many years that causes the health implications that are negative. So people realized in, in, in Sweden with Swedish snus that smokeless tobacco had a very different health profile than smoking. Um, 
So there was a concerted effort to educate folks, to get science, things like that. There were a few people, and back then it was David Sweener stepped out, Clyde Bates stepped out, Dr. Brad Radu stepped out. But what happened is you, you'd have the story like Greg just described that was just a story of horrors for 20 paragraphs. If you got one sentence at the end that said, so-and-so doesn't agree with this, we were happy, like, oh my God, we got mentioned in this horrible story. Things are changing. And, and, and that movement tried to run people, one of the professors that worked on this, they tried to threaten him, they, they filed ethics complaints against him, accused him of things, tried to get him fired from the university, tried to cut out funding from the university. That's the environment, and that just sort of festered and was what it was. But right now, we do have all those people, and Dr. Farsalinos, and other credible people, and Dr. Siegel, that are comfortable stand, standing up and being counted. And when you see those horrible stories, online and you make comments. If you look at any of them, you look at all the comments, they're coming from us. They're coming from vapors that are educating people about the nonsense in the stories. That is getting noticed. And when, the, when a study comes out, like the formaldehyde study, and right away Greg is there with facts to respond, and other scientists and people that are tobacco control advocates really for their lifetime that recognize it's garbage, that gives people pause. Uh, everybody likes the money, the university grant, but if they know that their career and their reputation is going, you know, they can't just do the study like smoking is awful and it's full of BS and then nobody's going to challenge it. But when you put this stuff out about these products, this community is passionate and it's making a difference. And I feel, you know, we have a lot of challenges, but when we work together and we continue to push the truth, we have the truth on our side. We are making a difference, and more and more people, one more scientist says, I'm not gonna do that study, or one more steps out and criticizes someone else. It, it really makes a difference, and we are making huge progress. And I'll add, to end on a positive note, that same study, 49% believed e-cigarettes were either more or, or at equally, 49% I think was believing they were more, more equally hazardous. What percentage of Americans believed that smokeless tobacco, which we have decades of epidemiological research showing that it is less hazardous than smoking, what percentage of Americans believe smokeless when asked in this poll was less hazardous than smoking? 10%. So five times as many Americans are correctly in the know about vapor products being less hazardous than smokeless, which there's been a campaign to try and get people to understand that for 20 years now. And unfortunately, it's not working for them, but for us, because of all the human stories that have come out and because of all the work that people at this table, people in this room have done to combat misinformation, we at least have the 49%. And I have a positive uh, announcement. Um, Dr. Farsalinos actually uh, bypassed the temperature study to release a study which is gonna be, it's been submitted now to, for publication. He actually, did the formaldehyde study <coughs> properly. He did it with users, vapors in the lab. He had seven vapors in the lab using the device and they identified the one unknown in vaping, which is the dry puff phenomenon, which no machine can tell you when your atomizer is dry, right? We know it by ourselves. So he did it in the lab with seven vapors. They identified the dry puff phenomenon. At that time, they extracted the vapor and they found, yes, it has formaldehyde, but that's not real time use. So he was actually pretty smart the way that he submitted it. He actually said that the people that did the study were correct. There is formaldehyde in e-cigs when you don't use them properly. Because nobody's gonna sit there and puff on an e-cig when they get that dry hit, and it's something that the labs haven't been able to.
to figure out. So hopefully after this study, they'll be able to, to dissect it. All right, round of applause for our panel here, please. Thank you so very much for coming. And uh, thank you, Kevin, once again for giving us a platform.